Well, good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. Again, my name is Jonathan Whitmer. I'm the executive pastor here, and uh, we're so glad that you've chosen to spend a portion of your Sunday morning with us. And it is good to be up here uh, with no crutches or walking boots. The last time I was up here, I was tripping over cords in the first service and almost bit it. And so it is good to be here. If you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 31. And here at Mount Calvary, we've spent about 30 Sunday mornings working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. 30 weeks is a long time. It's a really long time. And so if you happen to miss a Sunday or two, just want to encourage you that you can check out our YouTube channel, Mount Calvary Church of Elizabethtown, and, and watch the sermon there. Or you can go to our podcast, Mount Calvary Church Sermons, on Spotify and Apple Music and listen to the sermons there. And like the influencers say, make sure you like and subscribe. Uh, but I uh, encourage you, if you've missed any, to kind of catch up there. But it's been a great study. And we've gotten lots of positive feedback from you as we've kind of navigated our way, chapter by chapter, through this Old Testament book. And today we come to the end. And it's a sad ending. This week I polled our church staff and I asked them, what is your favorite movie? And so some replied uh, with their movie. The indecisive ones replied with a bunch of movies. And, uh, and I was not surprised that all of, out of the movies that they sh uh, shared with me, the majority of them had a happy ending. If I was to ask you this morning what your favorite movie was or movies, if you can't make up your mind, I'm sure in this room we get a lot of different answers. But I'm confident that a majority of those answers, a majority of those movies probably would have a happy ending. And it makes sense, right? We live in a sad world, and we're drawn to happy endings. Well, as I'm reflecting on our time in the book of 1 Samuel, I recognize that we came to a lot of kind of sad endings when it came to the leadership of Israel. And with every ending, there is a new beginning. And so this morning, I want to kind of do a quick review of some of those sad endings when it comes to Israel's leadership, the transition there. And then I want to look at Saul's ending, his sad ending here in 1 Samuel 31. And then I want to remind us of two important truths to remember. So join with me in prayer as we, before we go to the text this morning. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that we can gather together. We're grateful for your word. And Lord, our hope and our prayer today is that your word would take center stage, that Jesus, you would speak through your word, and that we would listen and hear what you want us to say. Father, we, we ask that uh, you would speak to our hearts and challenge us and remind us of who you are and challenge us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember way back in the beginning of our study, we have saw kind of the leadership of Eli the priest and his sons give way to the leadership of the prophet of Samuel. In 1 Samuel 1, we're introduced to Hannah, and she's in the temple crying out to God. She's barren. She wants a child, and she's crying out to God, and, and we're told that Eli comes up to her thinking that she is drunk, and Hannah explains her situation. And Eli prays for her and blesses her and tells her to go in peace and that God would answer her prayer. And the Lord remembered Hannah's prayer. And he gave her a son. And he named him Samuel. 
And she promised to give him to the Lord. And so after he was weaned, she took Samuel to the temple to live with Eli and be trained for a life of ministry. In Samuel 2, we see that Eli had two sons. They were worthless and sinful. They treated the sacrifices with contempt and they were careless sexually. Eli is old and he confronts his sons, but they would not listen to him. They would not confess their sins. And because of this, the Lord rejects Eli and his household. In 1 Samuel 3, we see that Samuel is the opposite of Eli's sons. He's faithfully following after God and ministering on his behalf. And while Eli's sons were careless in their sin, which led to their rejection, Samuel was faithful in his service, which led him to being called to be the next leader of the nation of Israel. Samuel was growing, and it was clear that the Lord was with him. And it said all of Israel knew that he was established as a prophet of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 4, we see the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And in the process, Eli's sons are killed. And when Eli hears the news, he himself falls over dead, which ends his 40 years of leadership in Israel as priest and judge. Towards the middle of the book, we see Samuel... Leadership come to an end, giving way to King Saul's leadership. In 1 Samuel 7, we see Samuel assuming the leadership position in Israel. Unlike Eli, Samuel's sons uh, didn't follow after God. Samuel was getting old. His sons weren't following after God. Uh, They were interested in worldly profit, taking bribes and perverting justice for gain. And in 1 Samuel 8, the elders, the elders approach Samuel and they ask for a new king just like the nations all around them. And Samuel prayed about their request, and God answered him in 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. People ask for a new king, king like all the nations around them. In 1 Samuel 9 and 10, we see that Saul was chosen by God, anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel. Saul was handsome and tall and strong. And Israel clearly sees his physical attributes, his abilities, and from that recognizes the potential that their new king possesses. And God clearly told Samuel that Saul was chosen to be the prince over the people of Israel to save them from the Philistines in chapter 9. But Samuel also took the time to make the word of God known to Saul so it can equip him for leadership. We see that in the end of chapter 9. And in 1 Samuel 12, we see Samuel's farewell address. He told the people he obeyed their voice and and gave them what they wanted in a king in Saul. And he encourages not to turn aside and and choose to run after empty things. And his last words to the nation are both, words of instruction, and words of warning. In 1 Samuel 12, 14, he says, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. In verse In verse 24 of 1 Samuel 12, he goes on and says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. 
But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. In 1 Samuel 13, we see the Philistines are at it again, attacking Israel. And we see Saul disobeying God's word, not listening to the instruction of Samuel, God's prophet, that Samuel gave him earlier in chapter 10 to go to Gilgal and to wait seven days that Samuel would be there to offer the sacrifices. Samuel is late. The people are scattering in fear. And so Saul forces the issue. He takes matters into his own hands. He, he makes the sacrifices. And Samuel comes and he doesn't buy his excuses. He says he's acted foolishly, disobeying God's command. In 1 Samuel 13, 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, for which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your king, kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Because of Saul's disobedience in chapter 13, God lets him know that his leadership in Israel is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. And the reality of, Saul, of Samuel's words in 1 Samuel 13 is seen in chapter 31. It's lived out in chapter 31. And here in the last chapter of the book, we see Saul's death and the ending of his leadership in Israel. And at the beginning of the chapter, we see a devastating defeat. The first verse tells us of this disastrous loss, giving us a summary kind of of the chapter. And then the next 12 verses give us the specifics of this disastrous loss. Look at verse 1 with me. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Here in the first verse of the chapter, we kind of get a live look in in the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And it reminded me of watching a live look in in the, in the, in the desert storm uh, Gulf War. I can remember in January of 1991 sitting in a living room and watching as the U.S. and its allies attacked Saddam Hussein and Iraq as, because they invaded Kuwait. And this was the first war of my lifetime. And because of technology, it was reported on different than any other war. And so at night, we could sit down and watch the evening news and watch video of the green skies above Kuwait being lit up with, with, with firefights from, from aircrafts and bombings and Scud missile attacks. It was also very surreal. But I remember just the watching, thinking, this is really happening. This is a live look-in and what is happening in the war. Well, we get, kind of get a live look-in here in, in, in verse 1. And it's not going well for Israel in the battle of Mount Gilboa. It's not, it's, you know, at least for us in America, we were watching the, the battle unfold uh, against Iraq, and, and we were winning, but here it's not going well. And on the night before this, in 1 Samuel 28, Saul was getting ready to battle uh, the Philistines in the valley of Jezreel. And when he saw the army of Philistines, he was afraid. And so he inquired of the Lord, right? He asked the Lord, and the Lord was silent. The Lord didn't answer his prayers. And so driven by fear, what did he do? He consulted the witch of Endor. 
and asked her to, hey, can you, can you communicate with Samuel? I need his help. I need some instruction. And so they communicate with Samuel. Saul tells Samuel he's in great distress. The Philistines are warring against him, and that God has turned against him and is silent. He is, does not answer his inquiries. And Samuel delivers some sad news again. He says, God will take the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. He will give Israel into the hands of the Philistines, and in the process, Saul's sons will die. Despite that bad report in chapter 28, the battle begins. The Philistines and, and Israel are fighting in the valley of Jezreel, while the Philistine char chariots have the upper hand, and they're defeating Israel. Israel's failing to win the battle, and their men are falling slain on the battlefield. And so Israel retreats, runs for the hills, the hills of Mount Gilboa for, uh, for some safety. They retreat to the rugged terrain. And there we see a bleak ending. The Philistines take the fight to Saul and his sons. Look at verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. The Philistines continue to pursue Israel onto Mount Gilboa, specifically sticking with Saul and his sons, chasing after them, ultimately striking down Saul's sons, including Jonathan. And Jonathan's been a pretty major character through the book of 1 Samuel. Dale Ralph Davis suggests this as an obituary for Jonathan in his commentary. It says this of Jonathan, he was a true friend of David, a faithful son of Saul. He surrendered his kingship to David and he sacrificed his life for Saul. He loyally served God, his friend, and his father to the end. Saul sees Jonathan and his other sons fall in battle. I can't imagine what he's feeling. He's probably brokenhearted and just emotionally wrecked, but somehow he survives this initial attack. He, get, he survives with his life, and the Philistines continue to press hard after him and, and kind of surround him. There is no path to escape, and they bring in the archers, and they fire, and Saul is wounded physically. Verse 4, it goes on, and we see he takes his own life. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Then therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and they lived in them. Here in these verses, we see the last command of Saul the king. And it's, fear for, and it, and it's clear from this command that he's more concerned about his current situation than the continuing situation for Israel. His command is self-focused. He asks his armor-bearer to take his life so that he wouldn't be mistreated by the Philistines. And this reminded me of King Arthur's last command 
from the movie First Nights. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sir Sean Connery in his Scottish accent plays um, King Arthur of Camelot. And there's a scene in the movie towards the end that uh, Queen Guinevere and Lancelot are on trial. And and Arthur is distracted by this trial. And the evil uh, Maligant and his men have the upper hand. And, uh, And they are forcing the king uh, to surrender. So King Arthur draws his sword and he motions like he's gonna lay down his sword and he says this, this is my last act as your king. Don't be afraid, all things change. I'm Arthur of Camelot and I command you now all to fight, to fight like you've never fought before, never surrender, never surrender, Camelot lives, and in the process, Arthur is shot three times, and he dies, but he rallies the troops to win the day. He rallies the troops to win the battle, and what a difference in that leadership. Saul is so selfish. He's only thinking about himself, but Arthur's sacrificial. He's thinking about the betterment of his people. So Saul asks his armor bearer, can you take my life so I'm not mistreated by the Philistines? Can you end it all for me? I no longer want to live. And it says that the armor bearer is afraid. He's afraid. And that's interesting. Like, why is he afraid? Why is he not willing uh, to obey the order that Saul gave him, the king? Some people think that uh, this armor bearer remembers uh, a former armor bearer of Saul. David at one point was an armor bearer of Saul. And remember in 1 Samuel 24, David had the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, and he refuses. In 1 Samuel 24, 10, he says, Behold to Saul, behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. It seems like Saul's current armor bearer is more concerned about following God's directions than the, than the order of Saul, his king. So Saul was left to take matters into his own hands. It's hopeless. He knows all is lost. He's lost his sons. They're losing the battle, and he falls on his sword. Israel's first king failed to deliver what they were really hoping he would deliver, right? After all, it's, God said that, uh, that Saul was going to help them to deliver them from the, the Philistines. Saul falls on his sword, and seeing this, his armor bearer follows suits and falls on his sword too. And verse 6 summarizes this deadly and difficult day. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Israel's defeated. The king is dead. His sons are dead. All hope is lost. I'm sure this isn't what the people had in mind when they asked Samuel, hey, we need a king just like all the other nations to help defend us and protect us from them. Saul was chosen by God to rule over God's people for the purpose of saving them from the Philistines. And now he's dead. When all of Israel heard that he was dead, what did they do? They turned and ran. They fleed for their lives. They ran away. Tim Chester in 1 Samuel for You says this about Saul. 
Saul's suicide was symbolic. The Philistines didn't remove him from his throne. David didn't remove him from his throne. He refused to do so. Saul did it to himself. He fashioned his own downfall through his faithlessness and his disobedience to God. The king is dead. His sons are dead. Israel is running. And the Philistines are celebrating. Look at their cruel celebration in verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fashioned his body to the wall of Bashan. Israel's cowering in fear and flees and the evil Philistines are celebrating, celebrating cruelly. In the last week or two, there is a video it's gone viral. It's kind of made its way around, uh, around the internet. It's of a third grade basketball team. And one of their team members, this third grader, uh, gets fouled, but in the process, he makes the basket. And for all the cameras to see these third graders, they are, they are flexing and they are celebrating in the cameras and they're just going crazy. And there's quite a bit of commentary about this video saying that, hey, it, you know, this is, this is uncalled for. It's not sportsmanlike. It's, it's cruel. They're, they're trying to show off and show up their teammates. Well, here, back on the battlefield, the, cele- the, the Philistines are celebrating, and it's pretty cruel and brutal. It's the custom activity that the winning, the winning army would go through the bodies of the dead and strip them from all the valuable things and take them for themselves. And as they're doing this, they come across the dead body of King Saul and his sons. And it gets worse. When they find his body, like David did to a dead Goliath, the Philistines cut off a dead Saul's head. After all, Saul was Israel's Goliath. Remember, he was head and shoulders taller than the rest of the people. He was handsome and strong, and they were so excited to have him as their king. And in 1 Chronicles 10.10, it tells us that they took his head and they hung it on the wall in the temple of Dagon, their chief deity, the Philistines, and Bethshan, their stronghold near the Jordan River. And our text says they took his armor and they put it as a trophy in the temple of Ashtoreth, their goddess of love and fertility and war in Bethshan. And they hung his dead, headless body on a wall for all the Philistine people to see and celebrate. And then they sent messengers through the land to proclaim the good news, the gospel. And what good news were they celebrating? What what good news were they sharing with all the Philistine people? That the king of Israel, Saul, is dead. That the gods of the Philistine are greater than the gods of Israel. That they have defeated Israel and their God. And as one commentator reminds us, this gospel is still proclaimed today. He said the Philistine gospel is still to be heard whenever human beings believe they've triumphed over God. Every mockery of God and his people, every expression of scorn to the Lord Jesus and his followers is a version of the Philistine gospel. They cruelly celebrated 
and they, and they sent the gospel, the good news to all the Philistines, sent, claiming that their gods have defeated the one true God of Israel. The king is dead. Israel's on the run. It's a cruel celebration. So we've seen a devastating defeat with a bleak ending and a cruel celebration. And our last few verses come along and we see a brave rescue and a grateful recognition. Look at verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and, and, and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Our chapter in the book of 1 Samuel comes to kind of a surprising ending. Israel is lost. The king is dead. The Philistines are celebrating. All hope is lost. The news of Saul's demise reaches Jabesh Gilead, and instead of sitting around and mourning, they go on a secret mission. They go on a secret mission by night to rescue and collect the body of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bashan. Why did they do this? I mean, Saul is dead, his sons are dead. They couldn't stand the contempt and the mockery that Philistines were showing their king. And they wanted to lay him and his sons to rest respectfully. And there's a connection here. There's a connection why they, they risked their lives here. There's a connection between this last scene of Saul's kingship, and it's a flashback to, to 1 Samuel 11 and the very beginning, the hopeful beginning of Saul's reign. And in 1 Samuel 11, we see Jabesh Gilead was besieged by King Nahash and the Ammonites, and the people sent messengers throughout the land. Can anybody come and help us? And the news gets to, uh, to, to, Gib to Gibeah, and the people weep. And Saul comes in from the fields, and the people are weeping. And Saul inquires, like, what's going on here? And they fill him in on the situation. It says, the spirit of the Lord rushes on Saul. Rushes on Saul, and his anger burns toward the Ammonites. And with the Lord's help, he musters an army of Israelites an army of Israelites to go and battle the Ammonites. And before they leave, before the, they take the fight, send words to Jabesh and said, tomorrow, tomorrow you'll be saved from your enemies. And the next day, the spirit led Saul along with the army of Israel, go and they get a great victory. They deliver Jabesh from the hand of the Ammonites. And so the people of Jabesh Gilead, they remember, they remember that how Saul came to their rescue, how Saul helped them. And they heard about his demise and they wanted to honor, honor what he had done for them. They wanted to show their gratitude for Saul and remember a time when Saul obeyed God and followed God's lead. So they courageously travel all night through enemy-occupied territory and they secretly remove Saul's body from the wall, his headless body and the bodies of his sons. And they return to Jabesh and they burn the bodies which isn't normal, but it's probably necessary because the bodies were hanging there and they were probably in a, in, a, in a terrible state of decomposition. And they take the bones and they bury them under the tamarisk tree and they fast for seven days out of respect and honor and gratitude for what Saul had done for them, how Saul had delivered them. 
One commentator said Saul's reign began with the deliverance of Jabesh-Gilead, and it comes to an end with Jabesh's deliverance of Saul. They honored and remembered a better day, a better day when the king obeyed the one true king, and he followed his voice and followed his instructions. And with every ending, there's a new beginning. Saul's sin and disobedience lead to the end of his life and the end of his reign. And Israel would experience a new beginning with a new king and David. And next week, we're going to start walking through 2 Samuel, and we'll see this new king. But before we get there, as we close out our time in 1 Samuel, I just want to remind us of two important truths that I think that we learn from our time in this book. Truth number one is this. True salvation can only be found, can't be found in a human king. True salvation can't be found in a human king. Israel wanted a king to save them from their enemies. They rejected God's leadership. They wanted things their way like the other nations around them. They failed to recognize that their real enemy was sin. And they disobeyed God and they failed to fully trust him and his plan. And like Israel, our real enemy is sin too. Our real enemy is sin is our, and our only hope and, and for victory and salvation is found in our one true king, Jesus. And like Saul, Jesus would die a shameful death hanging on the cross. The people would come and they would mock him. They would say, isn't this the king of the Jews? He saved himself, can't he? He saved others, can't he save himself? Celebrating his death. And yet three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered the power and the penalty of our sin, paying the price for it, winning the war against sin. Romans 8, 1, Paul says, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Our only hope, our only salvation is found in our one true king, Jesus, to save us from our sin and give us hope for now and for eternity. Our hope and salvation is not found in, it's not found in politicians, it's not found in pastors, it's not found in our parents, it's not found in any other person but Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin is death is only found when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk to you about how you can have hope, hope for now and hope for eternity in a life with Jesus Christ. True salvation from our sin can't be found in any human king, but only our one true king, Jesus and that's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sang about this morning, that, that we are saved from the penalty of our sins because of Jesus, because of our faith in him, because of what he did for us on the cross. So that's the first truth. True salvation can't be found in a human king. And the second truth is this. If you're here today, if you're listening to this later, it's not too late for a new beginning. It's not too late for a new beginning. Don't give up. King Saul had become a slave to sin. He was disobedient to God and chose sin over obedience 
and it ultimately led to his downfall. It's not too late for a new beginning. He failed to repent and turn from his sin. One commentator said this, Saul was just going through the motions of repentance, confession, prayer, religious activity, but he never dealt with the root issue of idolatry. He never trusted God enough to fully surrender to him, nor did he value God enough to be fully satisfied in him. Repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to an unconditional surrender to God. It's not too late for a new beginning. It's not too late. It's not too late to say no to sin and say, you know what, I want to obey you, God. I want to follow you. I don't want to give in to this again. You know, God was gracious to Saul. He brought many people into his life. He brought Samuel, he brought Jonathan, he brought David to point out his sin, to encourage him to turn from it, to repent of it, to encourage a new beginning. Yet their words fell on deaf ears. He refused to listen. And Saul was deceived. He was deceived like we're deceived at times, thinking we know what's best, thinking that we have it figured out, thinking that we can just listen to ourselves and justifying our actions, exalting ourselves above God, saying, you know what, I got it under control. I know what's best. I'll do, I'll do it my way. And Saul's disobedience and deliberate sin led to his destruction. Led to his destruction. But the good news is we don't have to be like Saul. There's hope. There's hope. At the cross, Jesus not only paid the penalty of our sin, but he conquered the power over sin and its mastery over us. Again, Paul uh, talks about this in, in Romans 6, 1 and 2 and, and verse 11. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 11, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, Sin doesn't have a power over us. We can be dead to sin and alive in him, following him. And yes, we live in a sinful world. And yes, we're going to continue to battle temptation. And some of us sitting in this room might be discouraged right now because we feel like we're, we're, we're losing the battle with temptation. We give in to the same temptation over and over and over again. And it doesn't have to be that way. Habitual sin isolates us from God, separates us from God's people, as we try to keep it secret, try to hide in the dark. But God wants to help us through the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living inside us. He knows our struggle. He wants us to get victory. We need to stop running from God, stop hiding, but turn and repent of it and ask God to help us, help us live for him, help us obey him. In Christ, there is freedom and forgiveness he promised us that he would provide a way of escape. He'd empower us by the Holy Spirit to choose to do what's right. It's not too late for a new beginning. We can repent of our sin and turn and follow Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're in the battle and you feel like you're losing time and time again, can I encourage you? We as pastors and church staff and elders... We're here to help. Listen, we all battle this together. There's no perfect people. We all have our issues that we struggle with. We need to help one another, encourage one another, support one another, be praying for one another 
as we fight our battles with temptation. Saul chose disobedience and sin, and it destroyed his life and his family. Let's not be foolish. Let's not follow his example. It's not too late for a new beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Saul's example. And Lord, it is a sad ending to his reign. And yet in this sad ending, it teaches us important truths. This morning, we just praise you and thank you that ultimate salvation is found in you and you alone. That no human person can provide the salvation from our sin that only faith in Jesus can. And so, Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for the fact that he came to this earth and lived a sinless life and went to the cross and paid the price for our sins and three days later rose again, conquering sin and death, conquering the power of sin in our lives. And we celebrate that today. And Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for your patience with us. We're grateful that it's never too late for a new beginning. And Lord, you know all of us. You know all of our hearts, our lives, like we talked about in our time of confession this morning. You know what we struggle with. And Lord, you want us to give us victory over that sin. You don't want us to walk in that sin anymore. So Lord, I, my hope and my prayer is that, uh, that we are a church that walks with one another, that encourages one another to say no to, to the sin that, that, that draws us and yes to following you. It's never too late for a new beginning. Jesus, thank you for your love and your forgiveness and the grace that you show us. And as we leave today, or may we walk in victory. In Jesus' name, amen.